Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Hey, can you guys hear me? Here we go. Uh, I think someone had a little bit of a spill faint up, up front. I hope she's okay. The team says she's doing okay, but we could be praying for her. Um, actually, let me go ahead and say a, say a prayer now. Lord, thank you that the initial word is that she's doing okay. Would you just watch over her and help her recover fully? And uh, as, as we pray now, Lord, and get into your word, would you please give us your spirit to understand what it is you have in front of us? Um, what a wonderful topic today. Is the Bible reliable? Uh, thank you for the way you've, you've preserved it, you've put it together for us and our benefit, and, and help us to ultimately see who you are and what you're about. But I pray that you would do that in us today through the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my son came home from middle school and said, Dad, uh, there, was, there was all these people handing out Bibles. And I was like, what? People handing out Bibles? This is a public school in, in the area. And it turned out... Group. I don't know if you've heard of them. Uh, some of you probably have. Some of you probably know them to be the group, the Christian organization that has for many years, and more, more so in the past, uh, just tried their best to get Bibles in every hotel room. You know, if you open up one of the drawers, there's a Gideon's International Bible. It's the real actual Bible, but the Gideon's International Group was the one that got it there. Uh, and, but uh, I'm, I'm taking this in. My son's telling me this, and uh, my response was like, really? They were doing that? Like, even as a Christian pastor, I'm like, how did they do that at a public school? And uh, his response was, well, it's not like they were on campus. They were, they were off campus uh, just passing these things out. Dad, they, they managed to pass out 600 of these Bibles. I don't know how he came across that number, but apparently he knew. People were talking about it. 600 of these uh, bright orange New Testament Bibles. And he said, Dad, is the coolest thing. Some of my friends were reading the Bible. I was like, wow, that's great. But I could tell there was more going on in his heart. I was like, what else are you thinking about? He said, well, you know, because of the commotion of it all, uh, all the teachers were commenting on it. And I said, well, it sounds by the way you're saying this that it wasn't all positive comments. And he's like, no, it was not positive. I said, well, tell me about that. Can you give me an example? He said, well, one of my teachers said, uh, as, he saw, as, as, as they saw, one of, uh, saw my classmates reading the Bible, he was like, hey, class, you can, you can read that if you want to. You don't need to go ahead and read that. Put it away. But if you do read it, go ahead and, and read it like some of these other stories we've been reading re recently in class, these myths and legends. Because that's what the Bible is. It's a collection of myths and legends meant to pass down religion. And my son was thinking about that. He kind of paused for a moment, and then he asked the question that was really on his heart. He said, Dad, can we know it's true? Can we know it's not just myth? Can we know the question that we're asking today that it's reliable. It led to a fun conversation with him. Uh, but that's the question really at, at hand today. It, we've been going through this Explore God series, asking some of the biggest questions about God, faith, and Christianity. And today we come to this foundational of all the questions. Is the Bible reliable? In some ways, I've been wondering why the Explore God people that, that be uh, didn't put this closer to the top of our series because it kind of lends itself to understanding these other questions we've been asking 
depending on what the Bible says. Like, well, if we keep talking about what the Bible says, shouldn't we address whether or not it's reliable? But, but here we are. Is the Bible reliable? Uh, growing up in the Bay Area, having lived here for any number of years, in a place that's not known for being terribly receptive towards Christianity, it's been my experience with friends, neighbors, whomever, that when it comes to the Bible, it's been seen as legends or myths or something that can't be seen trustworthy in a reliable sense. But that's what makes the text in front of us today so important and so strikingly clear. Luke is saying, as he starts his gospel account, Luke is saying, I've looked into it, I've compiled the works, and uh, so that you can, verse 4, know with certainty the things that you've been taught. Luke is saying these things are reliable. What I've put together and, and the scriptures just in general, they're reliable. Okay, Luke, we'll bite. How do we know that to be true? Uh, he gives us a number of reasons that we're, we're going to get into today uh, that I look forward to talking with you about. And I just want to say, when it comes to these three reasons that Luke gives us about, uh, about the reliability of the scriptures, uh, the little sidebar I want to share right now is the fact that Luke is specifically in his book talking about what he's writing, okay? So he's very specifically talking about the book that he's put together, right? Even still, I think what he says about the reliability of his book particularly applies in general across the board for the rest of scriptures. So there's my little sidebar. We're going to be talking specifically about the book of Luke, but applying it to the Bible because a lot of this carries over. Does that make sense? Um, The first thing we need to get into is how Luke starts his account, his book, a little bit differently than the other what's known, what's known as gospel writers and the way they start. So Matthew and Mark, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are known to be the gospel accounts or biographical accounts of Jesus. Matthew and Mark especially just jump straight into the story. Uh, John does so in his own way, but Luke does something a little bit different than the other gospel writers was starting out with, a, with an introduction. He starts with this preface to kind of get us into the waters of what he's getting ready to do. That's why he starts with saying, I've looked into all of this. And re- immediately, just in these first four verses of the book of Luke, we learn a lot about who he is and what he was about. So for starters, we learn that Luke was a highly educated person. In fact, I, I tend to think that he would be a guy that most of us in the Silicon Valley would especially like. He's very educated. He wasn't an engineer, but he was a scientist. More specifically, he was a physician, a doctor, which meant he was, he was comparatively very highly educated uh, uh, compared to the rest of the general population. And these first four verses really show that to be the case. We know he's a physician from other places in the scripture, but these first four verses tell us that he's, very, he's highly educated. Bible scholars look at the Greek that's used here and, and note that it is highly sophisticated, the language, the sentence structure, the syntax, the grammar, it all shouts that this person was very highly educated. Even as, starting in verse 5 and all the way through the rest of this account, he goes into everyday man's language. Does that make sense? And no Bible scholar thinks that this guy, uh, that that it was written by two different people, verses 1 through 4 and then verses 5 through the rest. Everybody thinks it's the same person, but Luke here shows his education in going, look, I've looked at the data. I've looked at the facts of the matter, and you can can know these things with certainty. Uh, The other thing we notice here in these first few verses, just it's worth noting before jumping further in, is that Luke was writing to someone named Theophilus. Okay, you see that there in verse 3? 
A lot of Bible scholars, well, first of all, we don't know who this Theophilus was. We Bible scholars are unclear on, on who exactly Theophilus was. But some think that he must have been like a Roman official because Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. That was a very honorific way of introducing somebody. So maybe he was a Roman official, particularly given that Luke was writing to Gentiles or non-Jews. Maybe a Roman official was the person he was writing this book to. Other biblical scholars think maybe Luke was writing to a more broad demographic of people because Theophilus literally in Greek means Theo, God, and Philia, lover. So God, lover. So some Bible scholars think that maybe Luke was just addressing lovers of God in the sense of anybody who's interested in these matters. So maybe even you and me today. But regardless of who this Theophilus was, Luke is making this unmistakably clear point at the beginning of his book. I have done the work. I have, quote, investigated all of it and so that you can understand that this, that you can read this with certainty, that you can understand that it's a reliable. Okay, so three reasons we're going to look at how Luke and then the Bible just in general, uh, we can know it to be reliable. So first, Luke tells us the Bible is reliable because it is an, quote, orderly account. Okay, if you look again at verses one and three, it says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. So when Luke is talking about others have looked into these things, he almost certainly is referring to Matthew and Mark at that point. John's gospel wouldn't be written for a few years after Luke. So he's probably talking about Matthew and Mark in particular, and perhaps other oral traditions that were going around about the life of Jesus. But that's what he's specifically talking about when he says, I've, I've drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled. He's clearly referring to Jesus, more specifically Jesus' life, ministry, and work. That's why we call Luke a gospel account. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gospels. Gospel literally means the word good news, but in this sense, we're talking about a biographical account of the things that Jesus did. So if you ever hear somebody say the gospels, uh, it's talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his, their biographical accounts of Jesus. And what he's saying is he put together an orderly account so that you can know with certainty these things. Um, Something that we just need to talk about when we start to think about the reliability of the scriptures, particularly in the case of the gospel accounts, is that they presented information in a way that was unprecedented in history up until that point, and actually for many, many years following. What we have here in front of us, we can easily take for granted today in terms of its, how it was unprecedented in the time that came before it. This was written 2,000 years ago, Okay. And yet, somehow, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote in such a way that in literary history just hadn't been seen before. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, who, uh, you know, former uh, staunch atheist uh, turned uh, Christian uh, apologist in a way, uh, was known for being a literary giant in his day. Just everybody in all fields looked to him as literary, for his literary expertise. This guy just read everything. He knew, he knew it all. At one point, he said this. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. 
Uh, do you see what, what he's saying there? Uh, we could take for granted, especially those who've grown up in the church or have read the scriptures a lot, particularly the gospel accounts, and just go, well, of course, here it is. But this is unprecedented for its, its day and age. And it's all about Luke and all these other guys looking at Jesus' life, work, and ministry under a microscope so that they could present it to you and me so that we can know with certainty, so we can understand its reliability. Uh, Dick Lucas is a preacher uh, in uh, England, uh, someone I became familiar with when I had the opportunity to do a short internship at a church in Cambridge, English, uh, Cambridge England. And uh, Dick Lucas, phenomenal preacher, effective communicator. Um, I remember at one point, he was talking about how somebody had approached him and asked, he, the person approached him and said, give me a watertight argument, give me an, an inescapable argument for God, and if you do that, then I will believe. Give me a watertight argument for, for the reason for God, and then, and then I will believe. That will be enough. And here's what Dick essentially said in, in response, and this is a paraphrase, but I'm going to put it on the screen for you. He said, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight argument, though I know some would uh, disagree uh, with me. What God has provided you and me with is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is a watertight person against whom, in the end, there could be no argument. Here's what we're saying in the first thought. The Bible's reliable because it's an orderly account. It's reliable because it ought to ring true. Does it ring true to you? As you read about Jesus and what he's about, is, does, it, does it pass the sniff test for you? Because if it doesn't ring true, then the scriptures would be the first to say, you might as well dismiss it. But if Jesus and his works and his teachings all do ring true, then boy, that's another story. We've got to really consider these things carefully. And what Luke is saying is these things ought to ring true. Now, this is the first point, okay? We're going to get into the hist historicity of the scriptures and why it's, why it's reliable. But what we're saying right now is that Luke is saying you can just read it on its own for what it is and determine, at least on, on a very real deep sense, does this ring true to you? And Luke is saying, and the rest of the scriptures come alongside him and saying, we have more than enough to make up our minds to understand it is what it is and it's, and it's reliable. Uh, C.S. Lewis, again, with his unrivaled literary exp expertise, uh, talks about this uh, at another point uh, that, I, that I found really fascinating. In one, of, in one of his writings, when he said, you know, when I've read all the biographies in life, when I've read about all the people in ancient history that I have, C.S. Lewis said, there's really three people, though we'll never meet them, three people that we just know through and through. You can't make these people up. We know who they are based on the writings that we have of them. It's Boswell's Johnson, Plato's Socrates, and Jesus of the, of the Gospels. Boswell's Johnson, Plato's Socrates, and Jesus of the Gospels. His point, C.S. Lewis's point, is when you read about these guys, you know they can't just be made up. You see their tics, you see their personalities, and at one point he says it this way. This won't be on the screen. It says, you just know what their fingerprint would be on any given situation. If you've read Plato's Socrates, if you know Boswell's Johnson, you're like, oh yeah, these guys are, you can't make these guys up. And what we have is by far and away more corroborating evidence with Jesus Christ of the Gospels. We have four Gospel accounts specifically dedicated to his biography, to what he was about. And Luke is saying, does it ring true? This is an orderly account. Does, can, you, can you make up your mind with, with it just on the surface? 
before pressing even deeper. And, you know, it would, it would follow that as you read these accounts, they ring true in, in the different nuanced ways that you might expect them to. So, for instance, in Luke's account, we've already said that he was a doctor, he was a physician. It might be fun for some of you, maybe you've never done this before, is to read or reread the Gospel of Luke and notice all the times that Luke calls out some of the detailed symptoms of the people that were coming to Jesus for healing. That you might expect a physician, a doctor to kind of throw in there. It's, it's fascinating to consider from, from these, these points of view. Uh, Luke, again, is saying we have more than enough, just on the surface of it, before diving deeper, which we will, to understand that it's reliable, that it rings true. You can't make this up. Uh, real quickly, some of the ways in which you can't make it up is just, for instance, thinking about Jesus' radical and revolutionary love, how he spent the vast majority of his time hanging out with outcasts, the poor the despised tax collectors, the prostitutes. This is 2,000 years ago when religious people were all up in Jesus' face over it. And yet Jesus wouldn't back down from these religious leaders. He'd continue to press into loving these outcasts of society, often confronting the very people, the religious leaders who would, humanly speaking, have most power of all over his recorded legacy, wouldn't you say? But he'd often push back in such a way where he would not judge the judger, but he would graciously, although sternly, say, no, this is what you're called to do too. His love was radical. It was revolutionary in so many different, different settings. And, and, you know, if you've read Jesus enough, you can get to a different place in the gospel account and see a situation brewing and go, I don't know how Jesus is going to respond to this situation, these people are trying to trap him or whatever it is, but I know it's going to be a very Jesus way to respond to. Are you, are you tracking with me? Just the, who he is, what he's about, how he responds to things so unpredictably is somehow also predictable in, in terms of his personality and how he approaches things to different people, his radical love. You can't make that up. Way ahead of his time. Then there's this little thing that he claimed to be God. I won't spend too much time on this. It's been the last two sermons, more or less. But Jesus didn't just go out there loving people, caring for people. He went out there saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. It's like, what? That's way up there with a statement. He claimed to be there at the beginning at the creation of the world. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Either this guy was absolutely bonkers loony or he was credible. And that sounds bonkers loony to me just coming out of my mouth until you read who he is and what he's about, you're like, whoa, whoa, my goodness, maybe there is something to this because he's not loony when you read the scriptures, when you read about his biographical accounts. Okay, these are just some of the things. These are the Gospels. Luke, and really all of them, are making it hard, hard, impossible for us to remain neutral about Jesus based on their orderly account and, and, and how Jesus makes his claims, lives his life, it it is impossible for us to just remain neutral about him. We can't just go, well, he was just a nice religious figure. He taught good things. He was a reformer of justice ahead of his time. Now, we either take him on his own terms or not. And Luke is saying, we have his terms. They're clear. Number one, there's an orderly account. They, they ring true. And by the way, that's an invitation for you. Let's say you've never read this before, and you're listening to me, and you're like, well, that's just a Christian pastor just trying to push it down. Okay, then go read it. Do what Luke is saying here and investigate it. That's the, that's the invitation here. And if it doesn't make sense to you, then by all means, abandon it. But if it does ring true, okay, we've got to take it seriously. 
First thought, the Bible's reliable because it's based on an orderly account. Number two, the Bible's reliable because it's based on eyewitnesses. We see that there in verse two. It's based on eyewitnesses. Uh, Put another way, the Bible's reliable because it's historical. It's historical. Uh, It's based on eyewitnesses. This is something the Bible does not shy away from. The fact that writer after writer, not just Luke, Peter, uh, Paul, John, all of them in their own ways and in different fashions, all say something to the tune of, and this is, none of this is fanciful stuff, but it's all based on eyewitness accounts. That kind of leaves you in a place where what, what are you going to do with that? You either have to reject it entirely or you got to really come to grips with, with what it is. It's, all, it's not fanciful. It's based on eyewitness accounts. One of my favorite places for this, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, actually, is 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul, writing earlier than Luke, actually, uh, in, terms of, in terms of the year, was writing to the early church at Corinth. And at one point in chapter 15, Paul says, here's what is of first importance. And as a little guy, I loved that really easy, low-hanging fruit of a shout-out. It's like, here's the Bible saying, this is, this is the most important thing. An important Bible saying, this is the most important thing. And here, here's what Paul says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, of the gospel I preached, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. This gospel you are, uh, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I've received, I passed on to you of first importance. Here's of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that was another name for Peter, Then to the twelve. After that, uh, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living, Paul adds, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me as to one abnormally born. So this is about as good of a gospel summary in the scriptures as it gets. Saying, here's the first importance, four things. Christ died for our sins, okay, to forgive us, okay. That he was buried, meaning he actually died. And then number three, that he was raised bodily from the grave on the third day. And then number four, included in that list of important things that are up there with the gospel, he appeared to people. Meaning that there's eyewitnesses to go and ask Corinthian church. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. Paul was over here saying, this is not loony, made-up stuff. You can go ask people. And frankly, of the people you could go ask at that time, it wasn't very long for some of these guys, they would eventually be, history tells us, martyred for the very reason of sharing that Jesus died and rose again. History tells us that all but one of the disciples were martyred for their faith. And not like they were just in one room all being martyred at one time. They were all out separately telling people about Jesus and all of them met that same fate. Dying a death where they could have easily gone at any point, you know what, I don't want to die for this. I'm ending it all. Saying, no, I, you got to believe this. You take my life, you still got to believe this. Uh, one of the really fun ones I got I to keep moving is the fact that Paul calls out that he appeared to James. That James was one of the early leaders in church. Not to be confused with some of these other Jameses. There's other Jameses. That James here listed was actually the biological brother of Jesus who himself was martyred for believing in his brother who would probably have had a hard time convincing, convince your sibling of anything, 
let alone that you raised again, you were raised again to life. That, that's something. And yet Jesus, James himself died for a reason of saying, it's true, you got to believe this. Uh, Peter, in one of his letters, he said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories, meaning myths, fables, legends, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Here's what Luke, here's what Paul, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying Christianity is not so good for your life and being a better person and comfort and community if it isn't historically true. If it's not historically true, then everything, all bets are off. In fact, in that same chapter that I referenced earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say that if this is not historically true, Christians should be the most pitied of all people. And you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The, 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 it has built into the holy text of, hey, if this isn't true, then it's all bogus. But if it is true, it has, it has some very strong claims and very strong implications for our lives. And Luke is saying, Peter, John, other writers, it's true. It's historically true. You can, you can look into it. Um, it's beyond the scope today in our, in our time frame to look at all the historical arguments um, for the uh, authenticity, the reliability uh, for the scriptures. But let me just look at a few. And um, I'm taking two, at least as far as the outline goes, from Tim Keller's The Reason for God, which is a really, really good book if you haven't read it before. And these can be applied to what I believe we see here in our text with Luke. Uh, number one, Tim Keller says, when considering the Gospels uh, that they're historical rather than legend, number one, we got to see that the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legend. Okay? The timing is just too early. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written at most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' life, death, resurrection. At most 40 to 60 years. Those are very conservative numbers. Uh, most think earlier. Paul's letter were written... Uh, probably 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, and oftentimes what people will say is, well, it was written so far, so long ago, how can we be sure that what, has, what was written originally hasn't changed? The answer to that we, is we actually do know through a science called uh, textual criticism. Uh, Alpha does this. I'm getting a little bit of a ringing. I don't know if that, you guys are able to help with that, but if I need to switch to a mic, just let me know. Um, thanks, guys. Um, textual criticism. So Alistair McGrath, a professor of science and religion at Oxford University in England, uh, was interviewed for the Alpha curriculum that we'll look at from time to time. Alpha is very similar to the Explore God curriculum we're going through right now. It's a, it's a course designed for people checking out the faith, checking out Christianity. And in this video, uh, this professor McGrath uh, talks about how uh, textual criticism is looking at uh, records of when we have the primary source when things were first written and then the manuscript copies that we have today. Is this making sense? And then looking at the time gap. And the whole idea is the shorter the time gap, the more reliability we can understand these texts to, to have. Are we tracking on that? And so what he does at one point is he looks at a lot of these texts throughout history that are widely taught in schools and in universities that nobody's questioning their reliability. And he compares them to the New Testament. Is this making sense? So if we can put the, the chart on the screen. I think this is really helpful. He talks about, if you look at like the ancient Greek historians, Herodotus and Thucydides. Yeah, there we go. Uh, you see that they were written roughly, they both wrote roughly uh, 500 BC. The earliest copies we have is roughly 900 uh, AD. So we have a time gap of between 13 to 1400 years. And even then we only have eight copies. And these, these are texts widely considered very reliable. 
Um, and then if you look at uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, who, by the way, wrote about Jesus, referenced Jesus in his own writings as being executed by Pontius Pilate. He wrote in AD uh, 100, and the earliest copies we have is roughly uh, 1180, so about a thousand-year time gap. And we have about 20 copies of Tacitus. Um, so that's, that's really good. And then we have Caesar's Gaelic Wars. There's a time gap there of 950 years. And we have about nine to ten copies. I read that in university. That's an awesome, awesome work, at least in terms of understanding early Britain. Uh, Livy's famous History of Rome. There's a 900-year gap, and we have a whopping 20 copies. That's really good. Uh, but then when you look at the New Testament, yeah, things just are, are totally different. I mean, it's just mind-boggling different. The New Testament was written roughly 40 to 100 A.D., and we have manuscript evidence that goes back to 130 years A.D., and full manuscripts going, going as far back as 325 A.D., and the number of copies going back that far exceeds 500. And then by the year 400 A.D., we have more than 24,000 copies of manuscripts, uh, of translations into do, different languages and, and the rest of it. And so McGrath, looking at this from a very uh, uh, scientific perspective of textual criticism, he, and this won't be on the board, I'm sorry, said this, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, authenticity, and integrity of the New Testament scriptures that we have passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first available manuscript. Professor F.J.A. Hort which I'll put this, this will be on the screen, one of the great scholars in the area of textual criticism, he, he concluded this. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. I don't have time to go into all the different pieces out there. Primary source evidence that corroborates that Mark, Luke, John wrote what they wrote. There's this guy named Papias in early uh, church history who, who lived about at the turn of uh, 100 AD who went, who is, we have record evidence of him saying that he knows that Mark or John Mark as he's known to in his gospel account interviewed Peter the apostle to get his material for his gospel account. And you think about the timing which that happened. Mark was known as being a, a youth in his day and age, meaning Papias was probably living in an overlap generation of being able to check this out for himself. That's a primary source information. A lot of people will say, well, there was at some point a vote that the church leaders put together and they kind of were compiling this and said, let's go with this and let's, let's pass this off. There's no evidence of that. The evidence is everybody just saw all these documents in the New Testament coming together and they're like, well, this is of course what it is. And that, of course, is not, because that person actually didn't write it. Remember Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of Thomas and all that? The reason why the church never said that's part of the Bible is because nobody, if you look back at the data, uh, at the, yeah, at the data ever, said, ever thought that Thomas actually wrote that. If they had, maybe it would be in the Bible. You, you get the idea. Uh, Tim Keller shares a story uh, at one point of um, Anne Rice, who is probably most famous for having written uh, Interview with a Vampire. Uh, not the most suitable of books for like a child kind of deal. Um, she was raised Catholic, lost her faith in college, married an atheist, but later shocked the literary world when she announced that she was going, she was going back to Christianity. 
And the story that she tells is that she started to look into, I don't know the story behind what moved her in this direction, but she looked into all the higher education attacks or criticisms for the reliability of scriptures. She started to understand, she looked into all these higher education, well-respected universities in the U.S., Western world, that were attacking the reliability of scripture. She started to look into that, and she came to this conclusion. This is from her later book, Christ the Lord, out of Egypt. She said, some books were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the divine Jesus, who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture, which had floated around the liberal circles I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in the field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I've ever read. Her words, I'm not trying to take aim at anybody here. The point we're trying to make is it's hard to discount things like the church was made up of eyewitnesses who died for the very things they were sharing. It's hard to discount hard data, historical facts that the early church changed on a dime and started to worship Jesus right after these events coming from a people group that had a very monotheistic theology. What would have done that? Like that many people that quickly. Luke is telling us why. He says there's an orderly account. I've looked into this. I've talked to these people. The Bible is reliable because it's historical. The timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legend. That's the first thought Tim Keller gives. The second one is he says the content is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legend. Uh, This is kind of an interesting one, but he's basically saying here there are plenty of places in the gospel accounts that just wouldn't have been included if all they were were legend, okay? So, So for instance, if you read the gospel accounts about Jesus, you'll find that there are a lot of random details in there that have no business being in there. Is this making sense? So for instance, we're not just told at one point that Jesus was asleep on the boat. We're told that Jesus was asleep on the boat on a cushion, It's like, it's nice to know that Jesus was comfortable. Thank you for that detail. But it's like, why was that in there other than it's a detail that was added? Or take a a more famous story of the woman caught in adultery brought before Jesus. Uh, He very famously stooped down and in the dirt started doodling. Do you know that story? Uh, I have preached on that text before. I have waded into the scholarship of people thinking they know what Jesus was doing as he stooped down, there has been so much ink spent, parchment on figuring out what Jesus was doing when he stooped down and wrote in that dirt. Are you tracking with me? People said, well, he probably was writing a Bible verse. Or he was just averting his eyes because the gal probably there unclothed. Or, or he was drawing a picture of the cross. And we don't know what he was doing. It's just pure speculation. Now we can speculate, but we don't know. Why is it there? Is it because the gospel writer included it. Not just random details are there. There's also counterproductive details. So for instance, the really uh, famous one in this regard is the fact that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, literally the night he was going to stand trial, just a few hours' time, he's in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And he is quaking in his boots, so to speak. His knees are buckling. The Son of God, as he looks at what he's been predicting for three years is going to happen to him as he goes to the cross. He's looking at it and he says, Father, would this cup pass from me? Why would you include that detail? Now he goes on to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There are plenty of people in a few hundred years' time, historically, who would face their death on behalf of Jesus, who would face things like being burned at the stake, so not some small, and say, bring it on. 
get to suffer for my Lord. We have historical evidence of people doing that. But Jesus, meanwhile, Son of God, is going, I don't know. Now, we know why he was doing that, because he was facing something way greater than his physical death. But if you were trying to convince people on the surface of the historical reliability of this, that would only be embarrassing. Or, here's a real fun one. We're going to especially appreciate this one. God's first witnesses of his resurrection, of his son's resurrection, were women. Now we go, that's awesome. That's right, cool. This was written 2,000 years ago when women at best had second-class citizenship. At best. Terrible. They were, in that society and many societies the world over at the time, women were not considered to be credible witnesses in the court of law. And yet God saw fit to have women be his first witnesses. You would not have included that detail in that day and age or for many hundreds of years later if you're trying to convince people to take this credibly. Is this making sense? So why did it happen? It, why is it included? It's because it happened. It looks like I, you got it. Here, here's the pieces. You need to know. And these are just a few of the highlights. Luke is saying this is an orderly account based on eyewitnesses so you can take it as reliable. You can understand with certainty what you have in front of you. Um, there's much, much, much more we can say. This is, this is so, like, top of the surface. For some of you, and I'm sorry, this won't be on the board, but if you, if you want to mark this down for your notes, recommended reading, if you want to look into this further, is Richard Bond's uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a really good reading on this. Uh, and then also Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I'd recommend it in that order. Richard, Richard Baum, uh, Baham's uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses and then Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. But let's, let's move on. So the Bible's reliable because it's an orderly account. It rings true. The Bible's reliable, Luke says, because it's based on eyewitnesses. It's, it's historical. And then last, we're going to move quickly on this one. The Bible's reliable because it, quote, fulfills our greatest need and longing. Uh, the Bible's reliable because it's ultimately about the gospel. Verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That word fulfilled can also be translated into our English accomplished. Luke is talking about the things Jesus fulfilled, the things Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Uh, Two weeks ago, we said it this way. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. The Bible ultimately isn't just trying to help us reform our lives already. Live better. It has plenty to say about these things, but that's not what it's ultimately about. Um, one of my favorite stories in the scriptures comes at the end of Luke's account. Luke chapter 24. Jesus had just died and, and was raised to life. Like literally, it had just happened. So all these events were unfolding, and not everybody knew about it at the time. And so there was these two disciples, followers of Jesus, who were walking along the roads outside of Jerusalem that it's awesome. Jesus kind of like walked up, rolled up alongside them and just got into conversation with them. If there is any single conversation I personally would love to be a fly on the wall for, it's probably this one. But we're told that these, Luke says that that their hearts were downcast and they're basically recounting the events that had just happened. And Jesus is like, what happened? Like, why, why are you guys sad? And they're like, well, there's this guy that we thought was the one. We thought he was Messiah. He was preaching, he's predicting his death. He, he predicted that he was going to rise again on the third day. And actually, this is the third day, and, but I don't, we don't know. And, and, you know, Jesus is just like, oh, really, you know. 
Actually, he says it like this. And man, if you've read enough about Jesus, you can already hear how he responds in these ways, where he's stern but also gracious. These are the words of Jesus. He says, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus in this moment was saying all of the scriptures, all of them point to him. There's all these rules, there's these commandments, but they point to our need for him. There's all these stories of the people of God doing just atrocious stuff that is descriptive to help us understand our need for him. It's all pointing to this this need and longing that Christ himself fulfilled, accomplished on the cross in dying for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible is ultimately about. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, it's about what Jesus came to do, fulfill, and accomplish for you and me. It's not good advice. It's good news. That's what the gospel literally means. Good news. Jesus has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. He came to live the life that we cannot live perfectly without sin in order to restore us into a relationship with God if we would receive it by faith. And that's where it's good news, not good advice, that we just go, you know what, you're right. I see my need for you. I am sinful. And I receive what you did for me on the cross. I believe. It meets our greatest longing and and our greatest need, even if we don't know to articulate it. The whole gospel, the whole Bible is pointing to the fact that God created us and made a way back to us when we rejected and regularly reject him. So what do we do with all this? The Bible is reliable. And if it is reliable, then it has some implications. The first one is, it asks the question, will you receive Jesus? Remember, the Bible on its terms does not go, you can just think of him as a nice person, religious figure, doing some incredible things ahead of his day. You could certainly do that, but you're not doing it on its terms. You're going on some other source, probably your own source, But on its own terms, if it's reliable, it's saying, will you receive Jesus? And if you don't receive Jesus, okay. But can you look into these things? The first thing I would say, one, you can receive him today. That's something you do in his heart. Excuse me, in your heart. And we have little connection cards there where you can actually even check the box. Today, I'd like to make the faith decision of following Jesus. It's not that checking that box brings you into a relationship with God. It's something that you do in your heart with him through prayer. God, I I recognize my need for you. I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. I receive that. And we just want to give you that opportunity, one, to put a little spiritual marker down for you, but also come alongside you and rejoice with you and pray for you in that. If that's you, you're ready to receive, you can do that today in your heart with him. But if you're here today and you're checking things out, I would just encourage you, if you're not in that place, to do what Luke has done and invites you and I to, to do as well, you and me to do as well, and that is to investigate these things. And one of the best ways you can investigate these things, if you've never done it before, is to read about the account, read the accounts of Jesus and make up your mind. Is he some weirdo? Or is, there, or is it credible who he is, what he's about, his claims? Look into it. And I would just say, if you're looking for any place to start, start with the book of Luke. We've already kind of done a little bit of the legwork there, right? Understanding the author and that sort of thing. So investigate it. But for those of you who have received Jesus... If the Bible's reliable, what does it mean for for you, for me? Uh, Low-hanging fruit, it has to mean we've got to let God's word sink into us. Wouldn't you say? We've got to let it 
If, if it's reliable, it's God's word, it is meant for us to be shaped by it. And remember, the main thing is not just to go out and do a list of do's and, and don'ts already. It's, it's mainly to show us who he is and what he calls us into. And as we get to know him better from all the scriptures, it will begin to shape who we are, mold us increasingly into his likeness. But we've got to spend time in it. You know? And I would just add, it would probably be good to spend time in it comprehensively. So if you've never read anything, start with the gospel. Start with the gospel of Luke. But then find a way to read all of it. One of the things I try to do for us, church family, as best I can, is in the preaching on Sundays, give, give us what I like to call a well-rounded biblical diet. That's why we're sometimes in the Old Testament, sometimes in the letters, sometimes now we're in a gospel and those sorts of things. But on, our, on your own, can you take time to read through it comp- comprehensively? Uh, I used to... I used to, many years ago, start in Genesis 1 and read, try to read cover to cover. It would take a little while, but I would read cover to cover. And I'd, I would not necessarily recommend that. If you want to do that, work for me for years, great. But I would usually get bogged down personally in Joshua because it's just so depressing. And I'm not just talking about the people and reading them and just being like, come on, you guys. I'm talking and doing the hard work and going like, man, how is my heart similar to them? I would get bogged down. You know what I'm saying? So I've found, if you, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, I encourage you to check out the Max Shane Bible plan. You can find, there's a bunch online that are free. This one particularly is on the, the YouVersion Bible app, which is awesome because then it's always right there. You can check it out. What I love about the Max Shane, by the way, it's not spelled that way. It's spelled um, M apostrophe C-H-E-Y-N-E. That's Max Shane. Anyways, you got to uh, look, look for it. But it's great because what it does is it basically finds, it, it's a Bible plan of reading in a year, and it'll look at some Old Testament, throw in some New Testament, and it always includes a song. So it's like, even if I'm in the book of Joshua and I'm getting a little depressed, in a, in a good sense, I know I have a psalm to read. Is this making sense? So anyways, I just offer that. And then number two, I would say, if the Bible is accurate, historically true, okay, we've got to let it sink into us. But number two, we've got to share it. We've got to share it. I mean, my heart, when I first heard the story of Anne Rice and how she just came to the conclusion, remember an interview with a vampire gal who looked into the evidence and found, oh my goodness, it's true. My heart so resonates with that if there's a lot of people in my life who just, just assume that the Bible is not reliable. Now, guess what, church family? Our calling doesn't therefore become, well, we just need to correct people's wrong assumptions about the Bible. That's not our aim. Our aim is to do what our aim has always only ever been, and that is what the Bible does, and that is lift up Jesus. We're just called to lift up Jesus that people may or may not receive him on his terms. That's our, that's our calling. Not in a way of, hey, you just got to see it this way or, or not. Or, hey, the, we understand for ourselves, hopefully this is encouraging and equipping for you, for me, as we, as we understand the reliability or historicity of the Bible and all the rest of it. But mainly, it points us to the main goal, and that is holding out Jesus. The Bible is reliable, but the best news of its reliability is the fact that it's all about the good news of Jesus Christ. We get to receive that. We get to be molded by that. We get to hold it out for others. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this word that you've given us that we can hold in our hands. We thank you for this word that we can take for granted. We thank you for how oftentimes when 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 we're trying to work through something that maybe is a little bit of challenging or differently, it can actually help show us where our hearts are at, what we need to understand more clearly about you and your love for us. 
But Father, thank you for it. And, and I pray that you'd help us uh, increasingly spend time in it, not for the sake of advancing in our Christianity, but for the sake of growing in our knowledge and love for you. And through that, out of that, our love for others. Help us to be a church of the word. Help us to be a, a church of your gospel, holding up the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to continue worship. The ushers